and welcome along to the very first Thames podcast. My name is James Coleman and we're here to give you the very latest in all things mentoring and bring you stories and advice from experts across our profession. Each podcast will have a different guest to share their experiences and expertise as well as telling us a little bit about themselves along the way. This special episode is focusing on well-being and we'll be chatting to Education Support Chief Executive Sinead McBurney. Sinead gives us invaluable tips on how to manage anxiety and build positive relationships between mentors and mentees. So, welcome along to the very first Thames Podcast. Okay, so I'm delighted to say that I'm with Sinead McBrady, who is the Chief Executive at Education Support. Good morning, Sinead. Good morning, James. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Yeah, very good. Thrilled to have you on the podcast. Um, do you mind just introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your role at uh, at Education Support and, and what you all uh, what you all do at Education Support? With pleasure. So uh, I've been the chief executive of the charity for almost eighteen months now, and the charity has been around since eighteen seventy seven. It wow. was set up, well, indeed, a long, old time. It, it was set up by teachers for teachers. Uh, and until I think, well, until our very recent history was part of uh, the union movement and then separated out to become an independent charity, uh, it was known as the Teachers Support Network, uh, having been the Teachers Benevolent Fund for some time. So our, our mission is quite straightforward, James. We exist to support uh, and improve the mental health and well-being of anyone working in education across the UK. So that's what we are there to do. And uh, my role as chief executive is obviously to lead that. Um, there are there are three levels across the education sector at which we work. And I'll, I'll just touch on these very briefly. We'll come back to it maybe at the end. But our, our core comes from our history. We help individuals with emotional and mental health as well as financial welfare through uh, a counselling helpline, through online resources and through specific financial grants for people in need. We support education employers to listen to and understand their staff and uh, we help them to provide appropriate emotional uh, support to their staff. So access to face-to-face counselling, workplace surveys, uh, that sort of thing. And uh, then above that, because I guess at that level we're helping individuals, we're helping the workplace, and um, that still leaves us dealing with the symptoms of, of uh, mental health and well-being issues in the sector. So it's been very important to us to develop our research and policy work. So we uh, undertake research on the health of the education workforce, and we use the findings from that to advocate for improvements uh, and to make policy recommendations. So that's what we do. Great. And, and I, I guess at a, a time like now, never more important to have that support available to, you know, frontline staff. I think so. I think that, uh, you know, it's important for us always to hold a perspective on the limits of what we do. You know, we can provide support and help for people. But uh, at a time like this, actually, I think one of the most important uh, activities that we can do is to raise awareness among everybody in the sector about the importance of thinking about and caring for their own mental health, helping people to understand that anxiety in this situation is fairly normal and being able to reference them to to practical tools that can help people improve their own understanding, improve their own awareness. And when they 
when they're able to bring stuff into their awareness, usually people are able to cope and, and come up with strategies to help themselves more easily. So that's a big part of our work during the whole pandemic and lockdown phase of the last few months. Absolutely. I, I think that's possibly with one of the consequences of lockdown, a negative side of that is, is potentially that inability to be able to talk to others if you are struggling with it you don't necessarily have those social outlets that you'd normally have and, and we all know how important it is to communicate when you're finding things difficult uh, what what sort of advice would you maybe give to anyone who is feeling you know potentially still fairly isolated or is worried about maybe expressing some of those anxieties or, or concerns that they might be feeling what, what sort of outlets do those do those people have I think the well, I think the in in terms of outlets, there are safe places to have conversations. So ideally, people would feel secure enough in their workplace relationships and their familial and friendship circles to be able to discuss how they're feeling. Uh, but of course, that's not always the case for everybody. Um, and in that case, I, I would encourage everyone to share widely the fact that our helpline exists and is staffed by counsellors who are trained in listening to and having conversations with people. And you don't have to be in severe crisis to use our helpline service. Actually, just wanting to have a conversation with someone is a good enough reason to pick up the phone and dial 08,562561. And there will be someone there you can speak to 24 seven every day of the year. So nobody has to ever be on their own or feel completely isolated. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's why we exist, is to provide that service. But as I say, I think, I think we would uh, encourage people to reach out and speak to the people they have relationships with. And that might be across the, the school uh, staff team. Of course, that's not always helpful. And sometimes people don't have positive relationships in their workplace. Uh, most people will have a friend or a family member uh, or part of a community or a club or some part of their life where there are relationships in which they could reach out and maybe they're not used to talking about how they feel because after all, we are very British, James. We don't, we don't always <laughs> like to talk about how we feel. Um, but actually, uh, I think what I would say to those people is at a time like this, the responses that you're having are completely normal. You know, there are people up and down the country who are feeling isolated, who are feeling, uh, you know, might be feeling depressed, might be feeling anxious, might be feeling overwhelmed, might be just feeling sad, have a lack of motivation, uh, might be struggling to focus and concentrate. There'll be other people who wish that they could feel isolated. You know, they will feel claustrophobic because they're in the same four walls with the same people day in, day out. And they would, you know, love nothing more than to be out on their own. And of course, a lot of people are taking advantage of the fine weather to just have a little bit of personal space. Um, but I suppose what I would say to people is wherever you sit on that spectrum, you don't need to feel ashamed or embarrassed or like you're in any way odd or weird. This is a wholly normal response to this situation, a really reasonable response to a very strange situation. You, you mentioned the importance of, of relationships and, and obviously the podcast we're doing today is for the Thames and so you know a lot of our focus is on mentoring and and we know how important that relationship between the mentor and mentee whether that's in school or in any environment really is, is absolutely vital um for for mentors returning to school in September when you know there's so much change anyway you're, you're conscious of the fact that your role might look very different 
to what you've used it to what you're used to it being anyone who's anxious around that September period what can people do to kind of beyond exactly as you've already outlined speaking to people what sort of strategies can people put in place to support them with their anxiety around September with with so much change coming up well, I think the, and again, at the end of this, I can, um, I know we'll touch on where people can find out more information, but I think there are some really kind of well-researched strategies for managing anxiety that to some of us might feel a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit contrived because it's not how we normally uh, do things. But I think what has there's good evidence to show that if you use these strategies, it will help to dampen down anxiety that you might be feeling and will help you to move out of that stage of anxiety. So um, I, from that base, I would say to people, even people who cringe slightly when they hear these strategies, to, mm -hmm. to not dismiss them on that basis. Um, so you know, the first thing is around managing worry. Um, and it's very easy for worries to become bigger and bigger inside our heads and inside our chests and inside our stomachs when we get butterflies and we feel, you know, all the feelings about it. And um, actually, if you can try and take some action to boundary uh, those worries, that's a very powerful thing. So that might be writing them down, uh, doing, pro you know, what, what, what's the evidence? What's the evidence to support my, you know, this particular worry? What, what? what's for and against it. Let me just look at that and do some kind of analysis based on whatever data I've got. And um, try and, and allocate some specific time. So you think, okay, I'm going to worry about it in this window, and then I'm going to close that off, and I'm going to hold the discipline of not thinking about it again. So there's some tactics and tools to try and manage worry and to evaluate it uh, based on data rather than based on our feelings and responses to it. Um, a second strategy is about managing information. So at the moment, you know, I, I joined Twitter at the start of lockdown, having been aggressively anti-social media um, and mocked mercilessly by, by my younger sisters for my fuddy-duddy relationship to the, you know, to, to the modern world. Um, and I joined it because I felt very disconnected from the education sector, from colleagues and other organizations, and I wanted to know what was going on and it seemed a way to connect. But very quickly, of course, it becomes uh, you know, quite addictive and it's very easy to suddenly turn to your phone to find, you know, in any moment of downtime, let me see what's on Twitter, let me see what's in the newspapers. You know, I routinely scan all the major newspapers to see what the different points of view are. Um, and, and there's some value in that, and it's partly relevant to my job. But actually, if I do that too much, it's overwhelming, and it's too much, and I can make myself really anxious when I um, read about this, that, and the other that's happening in, in, in other countries, and I think about where we are here. And, and it's not, um, it, it, it really, I suppose, um, can increase my anxiety. So, uh, you know, apart from trying to manage the worries, I think managing information and making sure that the sources of information really are credible, um, uh, not based on opinion, but based on some kind of, a you, know, re you know, authority is a relative thing. And, uh, you know, we could have a long philosophical debate about what is truth, mm -hmm. but it is, un you know, undoubtedly there are sources on the internet that are less reliable, less based on 
a well-researched evidence base than others. And so it's important to be conscious about where you're getting your information and to assess for yourself, you know, what you think is reliable. Um, so managing that's important. Communication with family and friends actually making the time to talk to people. We don't always have to Zoom, you know, it's become, yeah. it's become Zoom is like, you know, the, the new black and, and it's, it's impossible to have a phone conversation now anymore. Everything is automatically a Zoom and actually that can be too much. So, you know, take your phone and, and your headphones and chat to somebody while you're going for a walk in the sun. Um, you don't have to sit with your face glued to the computer, but communicating with family and friends remains a really, really important strategy. And, you know, being, allowing yourself to talk about how you feel is a really legitimate thing to do. You don't need to uh, be embarrassed or ashamed about it. If the people that you're talking to find it difficult to hear about your feelings, then find some other people to speak with. And if it's a fact, you know, if part of the issue is that your thoughts and feelings are really very strong and very uh, sad or negative, uh, then, you know, at that point, think about using resources like the helpline we talked about, um, because the, the people on the other end of the phone really are trained to listen and, and they will be able to have a good conversation with you about how you're feeling uh, and to, to give you a sense of, you know, you're OK. It's, it's a valid response uh, or to signpost you to further help if you need it. So communication, very important. Um, Perspective is important. So sometimes it can be very easy to uh, think about the worst possible outcome. And I, I have days of this. You know, my, my family is in, is in Ireland. So uh, my own kids here, we live in London. Uh, my own children are desperate to see their grandparents and aunts and uncles in Ireland. Um, and it's hard to say, you know, it's going to be a long time until we do. And it's very easy, easy for me to become very negative about that and to feel really dreadful. Um, so it's also important to be active in, 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 in catching yourself in those negative spirals and choosing to shift your perspective a bit. And a really easy way to do that is, and again, this is one of those things that will make people cringe, but you know what, it actually works, is to decide, okay, what have I got to be grateful about today? Today specifically, what can I, you know, what can I really feel gratitude for? And there's always something. And if you can't find something, you probably haven't looked hard enough. Uh, because it, you know, it doesn't have to be that you won the lottery. It can just be that there's an amazing cacophony of birds outside your window making sounds that we haven't heard in in, in big cities for for decades. Um, so you know, I think that shifting perspective is important. Um, three more strategies that are important around anxiety. One is establishing a routine, and again, this is relevant to the the isolation we talked about earlier, James. Um, yeah. uh, Routine doesn't mean rigidity. You don't have to be military in how you uh, execute this and you can be flexible and do things differently. But it is helpful for us as humans to have some kind of routine so that we don't end up staying in bed all day. Um, you know, on the weekend, it'll be very easy to, to kind of try and recover from a, a tough, demanding week at work by just not shifting. But actually, that's not very restorative. So trying to find some routines that keep us in good habits and healthy habits is really important. Um, relationships and managing relationships, recognizing particularly for people who are in shared, uh, you know, whether you're sharing your living space with your, your nearest and dearest or whether you're living with uh, in, in a flat share or a house share of some description, there will be conflict in, in, in homes 
uh, when everybody is spending most of their time there. And here we are, many people are working, you know, working from home, many people are furloughed. So even if you're in and out of school, the, the atmosphere in your home can be very different. I think it's important to realize that conflict will happen um, and to not try and shy away from it, but to try and engage constructively in, in the tensions that arise through people spending, you know, sometimes too much time together um, and to just be proactive in managing that. For lots of people as well, there'll be, I, I know a, a teacher friend of mine who um, is in a house share in London with um, a landlord, but the landlord usually works away a lot of the time because he travels a lot for work. Whereas in the lockdown, the situation has completely changed. He's now spending 24 hours a day with this person who he doesn't necessarily know particularly well, was never yeah. planning on living with for that period of time. But with the scenario that's that's cropped up because of COVID, they, they are now in, a, in an uncomfortable situation, one that neither of them would have wanted to be in. And, and acknowledging that has been quite a difficult thing for him in terms of not trying to change that situation, but just acknowledge that actually maybe it isn't ideal, but that's okay because we can still manage that and we can still be happy and we still can live a life that we're both happy with in that environment. Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly the kind of accommodation. So the two things that stand out in that is one, you know, being willing to acknowledge to yourself that this isn't ideal and then accepting that. Um, and trying to make the most reasonable accommodation that you can with the situation that you have. That's a really smart thing to do because the, you know, some of the alternatives are to get really frustrated, probably with fairly limited choices about what to do differently, um, to really dwell on the things that are difficult. Again, that's, that can lead to distress, uh, unhappiness, depression. So really smart choice on your friend's part to just uh, be honest about it, recognize it and acknowledge it, but also try and find the way to live with it and make the accommodation. Because um, a, lot of what, a lot of what you spoke about, Sinead, there's, there's uncomfortable choices to be made for people there. If, 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 you're, if you feel like something, you know, either externally or internally doesn't feel quite right, it's uncomfortable to challenge that. You know, the easier option is to just allow that to continue and to think that it'll be okay. And, and it may well end up okay, but it's the harder choice to start having, you know, a diary where you're writing down grateful things every single day. It's the harder choice to not go on Twitter for two hours. It's the harder choice to, you know, go make sure that you, you do that exercise every single day. If that's not what you're used to doing, if you're having to change and challenge some of your habits and some of those routines that you've gotten into. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, I was laughing this morning. I was out for a run this morning with my, my older son, my nine-year-old, and we ran into two teachers from his primary school uh, who were out having a walk. And they were, you know, very impressed by our fitness, which of course is hilarious <laughs> because I'm one of the least fit people you'll ever meet in your life. But uh, I was saying to them at the start of lockdown, you know, I spent a lot of my time talking to people about how they ought to handle difficult circumstances and anxiety and so on. So it was a real case of practice what you preach. Um, and so I decided with my family, we would run every morning um, yeah. or every morning that my old knees will accept me running. <laughs> um, and so four mornings a week, we're up and out and we do our run. Um, and the number of times that I, the alarm goes off and I, just desperately want to roll over and not get up. I mean, it's yeah. pretty much a daily event. And, and every day I have to dig deep and find the discipline um, to get myself up and get myself out. 
but I know and I have the evidence that if I do it, it genuinely I genuinely feel better even at the beginning when I could you know ended up walking most of the four kilometers that we run every day um, I felt significantly better for being up and out and so I have to just sort of suspend how I feel about the action and just carry out the plan that I made and commit to it and, and then that way keep the discipline. And I think you're right, it can be a very hard choice, but the return is very positive. Just one on, on the anxiety point, one last but very important strategy around managing anxiety, and it's the last yeah. of them, is just about accepting uncertainty. You know, I think it is now more than ever, this is, these are really, really uncertain times. I mean, Life is always uncertain and we, we as humans like to have a sense of control, which we sort of artificially create. But, you know, we can all say this is all a pretty uncertain time. And I think in accepting that, it's letting yourself know that it's really okay to feel sad about it. It's okay to feel sad about the fact that you won't have your usual summer holiday or restoration in the way that you normally would. It's really fine for me to feel sad that I'm not going to see my family in Ireland for I don't know how long. Um, that's okay. Those feelings are normal. Uh, and and if I accept that, then I'm not dealing with the feelings and also dealing with some sense that I'm I'm bad or wrong for having them. You know, so I think accepting uncertainty is really important when it comes to anxiety. And I, I think I, I th well, I think that can that's a a unique challenge as well, or, or perhaps slightly tougher for for teachers because I think inherently teachers, and I'm speaking from experience here, but you you, you have you 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 want control most of the time especially within class and you know you're responsible for such a lot of things that that control element is something that could be quite hard to let go at times and so when yeah. when, when we're relating it to work and people thinking about September I think for teachers especially that that is definitely something that a lot of people are struggling with at the moment that lack of control over their scenario they've got a different class they're in a different classroom they've got this set of children one day they've got the next set of children children are coming in at different times they might not be turning up at the same time all those elements that we'd normally rely on for the children's benefit because the children benefit from that sort of structure and ourselves all those things are up in the air at the moment and that can make it very difficult I think that's right. And I think the other thing I'd say to, to teachers, um, particularly around this, is it's also okay. You know, I've talked a lot about feeling sad or, or blah, blah, blah. But actually, it's okay to feel angry, you know, as well. Yeah. And I, when I talk to teachers, I, I think, you know, mostly people um, who have gone into the teaching profession, they're not carrying great amounts of uh, aggression routinely. You know, they're in a very social environment and most people are, are kind of of a a temperament that, that means that they uh, kind of enjoy that. And so it can be very unfamiliar, particularly to be feeling anger. Um, and yeah. so I would just say as well, as, as all that routine and all that normality uh, and all the shifting and, you know, chipping, ch chopping and changing goes on, that, that if you find yourself feeling angry, that's okay too. Absolutely. I, I must ask, have you, have you stayed on Twitter? Have you made it through lockdown on Twitter still? I am still on Twitter with uh, some better discipline. My partner likes <laughs> to occasionally cough in a sort of, you, know, you, you, you appear to still be on your phone way. Um, I find it, I continue to find uh, that the, the sense of connection with other people in the sector matters to me. Um, yeah. So I'm not, I'm, not a great, I'm not a great one for tweeting. I sort of forget that occasionally I might contribute something. But I find it very helpful to hear what people are experiencing and what the conversation is. And then I have to manage myself and, and get off it again. So, yes, I'm still there, but hopefully in a slightly more managed way. 
and I think I think it's also about managing like using that tool for the right things you know thinking about who you follow thinking about whether or not you need to follow that person if you're if you can if you constantly get a reaction that's negative from that person that tweets or the person on Instagram then maybe consider whether or not you need to follow that person because you don't want to be doing anything that's give, that's provoking a negative reaction inside you do you Indeed. I mean, that, that, that's, you, there's enough going on without adding unnecessary fractiousness and agitation into your life by, yeah. through, you know, through, through the, the number of characters in a tweet. Um, slightly away from the COVID um, scenario that we're in at the moment, we've mentioned a little bit actually in relation to anxiety and those sorts of things around how to manage challenging situations, challenging scenarios. As a mentor, from a mentor's perspective, one of the one of the certainly my own experience, one of the things I I found most difficult was having very honest and open, difficult conversations, challenging conversations, with my mentee at times in the year when inevitably I'd need to challenge something that was perhaps uh, uncomfortable, and that was something I had to really work with and seek support from my senior leadership team to to be able to deal with better. Would you have? Any advice for, for mentors who know that they need to have a difficult conversation with their mentee? How, how best to approach that? Um, so I, I've kind of two main principles that matter to me on this, and then I might share a, a model if I'm able to explain it in a way that, that comes across helpfully. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm no expert in this, but but based on on my work and my own learning and and sort of what we know about effective communication uh, at education support, I think there are two things that matter to me in this space. One is in in when you're dealing with a difficult or a challenging conversation. One is around basing your feedback uh, or, or basing your evaluation of the issues even before you get to feedback on data. Uh, and, and making sure that you're not, you know, basing it on assumption or belief or, or biases or the fact that somebody's operating in a way that just isn't in line with your own preference, but actually might be totally fine. It's just that it's not the way you would do it. Yeah. Um, so I think that point about basing what your, um, the, you know, your, your kind of response to the issue on data is really, really important. Um, so that's the first point for me. And the second point is around is just to be empathic, uh, and I I say that as somebody in in my in the early part of my career, you know, I started working in 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 a global firm. I was in the city, and um, it's a very uh, fast paced, demanding environment. And I was, uh, you know, as a very young manager, uh, but I was all about efficiency. <laughs> you know, I didn't. Yep. I didn't make any time for anything extraneous. I was interested in getting the most amount of stuff done in the shortest amount of time, end of. Um, and, you know, it's a very short-term perspective. Uh, yeah. And, and with, uh, with many years under my belt, I feel I've become a little wiser on this. And, you know, <laughs> efficiency, uh, it, you know, it can be a very helpful comment, but it's, it really doesn't get you uh, through to the long run, I think. And so thinking about investing in those relationships, I think, is where the empathy is a much uh, better approach for long-term gain. Um, So asking, how are you doing, is a very powerful question, for example, and that's sort of empathic. Before we dive into something very difficult, creating a strong footing for a relationship 
uh, creating the space for really collaborative inquiry about the issue at hand rather than I'm now going to tell you how rubbish you are or, you know, another mindset that is a lot more punitive. Uh, you know, trying to get into a space of collaborative inquiry, I think, is much better. Yeah. I mean, there are times when that's not possible. There are situations when performance is extremely poor or somebody's done something that is just unequivocally problematic and wrong. Um, and, and especially if the individual is unaware of that or disputes that and then you have you know, evidence and data to the contrary, then that, that's a sort of slightly different issue and you probably wouldn't, um, you'd be probably trying to deal with it in a way where maybe empathy isn't at the forefront of your mind. There's some urgency in sorting out whatever's happened. Um, but for most issues where it's a kind of performance thing and there's time to uh, resolve the issues and improve, then I think looking for an empathic footing is a really important approach. Um, and, and to that, the, the, um, so Mark Rowland, who is the Chief Executive of Mental Health Foundation, uh, I was having a conversation with him about a difficult situation I had to handle, and he introduced me to uh, a model by Kim Scott uh, called Radical Candor. Um, and the Radical Candor model I found tremendously helpful to me personally in, in dealing with uh, challenging conversations. Um, what Scott does in her work is sets out I suppose two axes on which we can think about how we interact with people when we're having, giving them feedback or having difficult conversations. One axis is the extent to which you care personally and, and actually how visible that is. Mm -hmm. um, and the other axis is the extent to which you challenge directly. Um, and so to illustrate this, if we, let's say that we have somebody uh, who's a, a trainee and actually our evaluation, we've, we've got some data, we've, we've talked to other people, we've validated our point of view, but it, you know, it, it, routinely they are over ambitious for all of their lessons. So they've got a, they set a really high bar for what they want to accomplish and they almost never accomplish it. So yeah. you know, at the end of lessons, nobody's terribly satisfied. Um, and that's the issue that, that you're wanting to address. But thinking about it through this kind of uh, uh, radical candor lens, if, if you're uh, not going to challenge very directly and if you're not really visibly caring about it and actually you just don't care very much about it, you're probably yeah. basically, well, she describes as manipulative insincerity. Um, but your main objective is to get out of that conversation quickly. So, you know, I might say, James, yeah, listen, you know, it's, uh, you, might, you might try a few different things, but basically it's, it's fine, you know, carry on. Um, yeah. which is going to create no change at all um, and ultimately establish mistrust because the feedback will eventually catch up more directly with the individual. Um, if you then you know, want to make the fact that you care more visible, but you're still not going to be very direct in the challenge you make, um, you might uh, you know, up the ante there on demonstrating care into what, what the model calls ruinous empathy. So effectively, I come to you and say, James, you're doing a great job, really, you're great. I mean, I love your ambition. I love your ambition. You, you, you design these lesson plans and, they're, and they're, you know, there's just such, such reach and scope in them. It's, it's amazing. Um, and I'm not challenging you directly at all on the, the point that is uh, problematic. So, you know, you're wholly ignorant now of the fact yes. that we have a problem and there's not going to be any change. Um, on the other side of this access, if we, if we demonstrate a low level of care, but we challenge directly, then we, we slip into what Scott calls obnoxious aggression. So... Mm -hmm. James, what's wrong with you? For God's sake, you know, just just work out how much time you have and figure out how much material you're going to deliver. This isn't difficult. Come on, this is like what you're training to do, right? Um, yeah. 
which is going to do, going to achieve little more than creating defensiveness in in the mentee and and maybe a little bit of change but not very much um, so where she advises us we want to be is in in the, the the segment that is radical candor right where we are visibly demonstrating care uh, and we do care and we're, we're demonstrating that and we're challenging directly at the same time so i can say to you James, you know, the ambition for your lessons is fantastic. The fact that that's what you're trying to get to is, is really excellent. Um, you very often, what I do think is that you're not able to execute that full plan. And it's an area we need to work on because it's, I suspect, not terribly satisfying for you. And I know it's not satisfying for the, the pupils in the class routinely to not feel like they can get to the conclusion of where this work is meant to take them. So we're going to need to have a conversation about it and, and work out a plan. And I really want to help you get there because I can see that somebody with your uh, you know, way of thinking is going to you know, make an excellent teacher. So let's work together and figure out how to improve this. So in that sort of I'm being very direct, I'm being explicit that I care. Uh, and that's really, you know, in, in, in Scott's model, that's more likely to lead us to a place of growth where you get sort of profound change really around the issue. Um, uh, because you're being explicit and being direct, you're not messing around, you're not going around the houses, but you're also operating from quite an empathic place. And I think just, just listening to those examples, uh, you know, as teachers, we know that the children we teach, they, they want to know that you're in control. They want to know that they feel safe. They want to know that there are boundaries. They want to know that they have an environment that they know the rules are in place to support them and keep them in the area they need to be. Listening to that as a mentor, you would want the same thing from your mentee. Listening to that last example, the, the thing that really came into my mind then was this person's in control of the situation. Yeah. They've identified that there's a problem. They've identified that I'm doing lots of things really, really well, but they're reassuring me that we're going to fix that issue. It's not that that issue doesn't exist or that we can just pretend that everything's okay. We're, we're addressing it and we're challenging it head on, but I'm not doing it by myself. I've got someone who's in control of this scenario to really support me through that. Yep. I mean, uh, I, 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 think the, I think it's a very difficult thing to do. It's really, you know, in the abstract, it sort of makes absolute sense. I think it can be very difficult for us when we're the person wanting to give the feedback to really be able to step into the place where we can challenge directly. And, you know, my own flaw from so many years, I'm not bad at challenging directly and I'm not aggressive about it, but I don't often, you know, it's not my instinct to demonstrate empathy because I'm so focused on we have a problem, that my body language and my messaging is quite stark. Yeah. Uh, not aggressive, but really not warm. And so I've had to work really hard to learn to approach this differently. And it does make a difference in how the person you're working with responds to the situation. And it creates much more of a sense of we're going, we're in this together and we're going to work yeah. it out. And I, th I think, I think as a mentor and mentee relationship, I think that that's really important that there's that that shared buy-in to something you're both you're both working towards the same goal not just i've got all the experience i know exactly what i'm doing and you're having to follow my lead it's a case of you and i are sharing this journey together and and supporting each other to get yeah. to that end goal absolutely um Sinead, we, we normally uh, at this point when we've done other podcasts i would ask we've got a list of uh, we call them our big five they're kind of five questions uh, around silly things like your favorite book uh in a true covid non-organized way i've managed to lose my questions uh and i can think about two of them off the top of my head so i'm going to ask you the two that i can think of would you mind that today is that all right 
that's completely fine. I, I'm feeling immediately anxious, thinking, oh my God, will I be able to Every, answer James's questions? Go everyone, for it. everyone does. And it's my favorite part for that reason alone. Um, but it, it, they, they, it's very straightforward. The first one is your favorite book. And it doesn't have to be education based. It could be any book. Your favorite book. So my favorite book I find almost impossible. I'm a voracious yeah. reader and uh, I read uh, everything from every genre I can get my hand on. But I will say that the book that I have found most profound over the last 12 months is The Overstory by Richard Powers. Um, and I, it's a long book. I found it, it went on a little bit at the end. So the last quarter of it wasn't, wasn't as compelling as the rest of it. But the first half of that book had me completely, well, it profoundly changed how I looked at the world. Um, and wow. that doesn't happen every time you pick a book up. So yeah, I would say the overstory. I think that, that quote might be on the front cover after, <laughs> after this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> as glowing a reference as you can get. Um, and the, the, the only other question, sadly, of our top five that I can remember is if you were hosting a dinner party, you're, you could have anyone from history uh, to, to the modern day, who would be your first person on the list of, let's say you had five people that could come, who would be your first person that you would have at your dinner party uh, if you could have anyone throughout history up to the modern day? My first person would be Nelson Mandela. Oh, Personal great. hero, you know, just think the man was unbelievable. Um, an extraordinary individual and to have the opportunity to have a conversation with him would be mind-blowing. Yeah, absolutely brilliant choice. I don't think anyone can argue with that. Um, right, but, so, but we're, nearly, we're nearly, uh, nearly wrapping up. So the last thing really that I, I, I kind of wanted to ask you was how can mentors specifically really, but anyone who's you know, listening to this within education, how can, we, we've touched it already, but it, it's really important to know exactly how people can seek support from education support and, and, and what are the, some of the uh, services that you offer? And I know we've touched on them already, but I, I think it's really valuable for people to be reminded that those services are there for them. Of course. So um, our, uh, the, probably the best way to access our services is to go directly to the website because the links to everything are on there. Uh, and that's www.educationsupport.org.uk. And from there, you can access information and guidance. We've got a, a series of digital resources. So, you know, the stuff we talked about, anxiety. We've got a, a short video on there from one of our um, uh, consultants who's a psychotherapist talking through that material around anxiety. We have stuff about bereavement, how, how to support staff, uh, how to think about bereavement in a school setting through COVID. Uh, there's there's a video coming next week on secondary trauma, which has become a bit of a buzzword in the sector. But what's the impact of dealing with some of these issues on the grown-ups on the front line, um, uh, and and how do we support them? So uh, the website will give you access to all that uh, guidance material, and there's document resources and templates for stuff as well. And um, uh, you can also, through the website, find out how to apply for a grant if you're in financial distress. Anyone who has worked in education who's in financial distress is, is welcome to apply for a grant. Um, we have a process and there are criteria, but if we can help, we will. 
Um, and during the pandemic, we have, of course, had a, a huge increase in demand, in particular from supply teachers who were, were left in financial difficulty. Uh, but not just supply teachers, term time contractors. And this isn't just teachers. It's anyone working in education. So you can find out about the grant program and apply through the website. Um, there is also our helpline, which, as I said earlier, is open 24-7 uh, all year round. And that telephone number is uh, 08000 And uh, again, the, the information about the helpline and the number is all on our website. So if, if you're the, the best way to get hold of us is educationsupport.org.uk. And from there, you can be signposted to all the stuff that we do, including the research work that we have. You know, we run a study every year on the health of the workforce and we use that to, to, to go back and talk to government about policy and how can we make the policy environment better to create a healthier environment for teachers and ultimately for students. Um, so, yeah. Heading to the website is the best place to go, James. Brilliant. Thank you, Sinead. And, and a huge thank you for your time uh, and being on the podcast with us today. Fascinating chat and, and hopefully really useful uh, for any teachers, mentors who are tuning in. A, a huge thank you. My pleasure. Thanks a million for having me. What a fascinating guest Sinead was. If you want to learn more about education support, head to their website to access all the resources we discussed during the episode. We'll be back in September with a whole series of podcasts. Kicking us off is a chat with Nasbit Executive Director Emma Hollis. Check back to the Thames website to download all episodes of the podcast and we hope you have a restful and healthy summer break. Stay safe and goodbye. Goodbye.